There we go. I think. It's going to be one of those days with this software. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, part four of An Unquiet Mind, which is titled An Unquiet Mind, um, kind of wraps things up. Um, you know, but this is, you know, a memoir that's done in the middle of her life, so there's still a lot of life left. Um, any uh, comments on part four? What's that? Yeah. What do you make of this uh, idea that she has uh, about the term bipolar disorder and um, uh, manic depressive illness? So, uh, so she feels like um, it's more descriptive or maybe more, she calls it um, uh, she says um, I always think of myself as a manic depressive. This is on page 181. My official DSM-4 diagnosis is bipolar 1 disorder, recurrent, severe with psychotic features, full inter-episode recovery. One of the many DSM-4 diagnostic criteria I have quote-unquote fulfilled along the way. And a personal favorite is quote, an excessive involvement in pleasurable activities. <laughs> that is funny. Obviously, as a clinician and researcher, I strongly believe that scientific and clinical studies in order to be pursued with accuracy and reliability must be based on the kind of precise language and explicit diagnostic criteria that make up the core of the DSM-IV. No patient or family member is well served by elegant and expressive language if it is also imprecise and subjective. As a person and patient, however, I find the word bipolar strangely and powerfully offensive. It seems to me to obscure and minimize the illness it is supposed to represent. The description manic depressive, on the other hand, seems to capture both the nature and seriousness of the disease I have, rather than attempting to paper over the reality of the condition. What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, uh, so why don't you, would you say that again? I'm sorry, I'm, my hearing isn't very good, so you have to speak up. Uh, I think she's trying to put in nicer words what George Carlin had talked about when he talked about uh, PTSD. Okay, what did he say? He basically didn't like the idea that the name changed from shell shock that really told you what that disease was about to 
Okay, good, good. Yep. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, I think she would agree that manic depressive really um, captures the kind of um, essential quality of what her illness was like. Um, whereas bipolar disorder with all these qualifiers becomes very sterile almost, yeah. Yeah, I do too. I, you know, um, and you know, maybe it's partly that she sort of started out with the term manic depressive illness, and then, you know, it's hard to get used to new things. I don't know. Any other ideas about that? So manic depressive really captures that, um, the extremity of the disease and the disorder um, in a way that bipolar doesn't so well, yeah. Um, what, uh, what do you think about stigma? Is manic depressive illness more or less stigmatizing than bipolar disorder? I think it's more. I think it's more, more stigmatizing? Uh, why that? Why? Why so? Because the descriptiveness of the words. I mean, the extreme depressive. I mean, the very reason that she misses, I think she misses that descriptiveness of what she is and what she feels. Good. You know, uh, bipolar does. It ha there's no, there's no feeling behind that word. You know, and so it is. It's, it's kind of neutral almost. Uh, I don't know. I, if you didn't know what either one was, you certainly could take a guess as to what manic depressive illness means, whereas you may not know what, what, what bipolar means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's definitely more stigma, I think, with the manic depressive. Okay, and I noticed you said it captured, I think you said something like it captured the essence of who she is. Yeah, and how she feels. Yeah. So yeah, so it's part of her identity. Yeah. With the bipolar because there's just not it's too neutral. She's she's an extreme person. She is. She really so it's, is. It, it, it's not extreme enough. And you know, she talks about how she sort of misses the extremes, well, at least the manic extremes, not the depressive extremes. But um yeah. Yes. And so it like, could be confusing. Use it in everyday lexicon, like to describe. Oh, my mom was being so manic, like if she had like a sudden mood, mood swing. Kind yes. Of thing. And so, like, it carries that kind of connotation where, with it, whereas bipolar is more like the term. It's the same thing, like with all the fancy names for surgeries and disorders. I mean, like for instance, just because this is the only one that comes to mind, like a oophorectomy. Anybody know what an oophorectomy is? Exactly. It's, it's having an ovary removed. You know, if you say they shanked out my ovary. <laughs> they shanked That's out my ovary. <laughs> 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 
if I'm ever in prison and I need a <laughs> ovary removed, I'll know who to come to. You can shank out my ovary. But, but what I'm saying, though, is like the, by bringing, making it a more like yes. clinicalized term, that it, it seems more like a disease. S uh, so clinicalizing it and making it more like a disease, um, does that stigmatize it or destigmatize it? I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm going to get to you, Victor. Did you have a... Was there a new question or? No, that was actually, I have a statement. Okay. I believe any medical, either mental or physical diagnosis is going to have a stigma attached to it, regardless of how extreme or how real it is. Okay. So uh, if I get a, if I go to the doctor and I get a diagnosis that I have a rhinovirus, I have rhino, rhinoviritis. Sure. Um, any diagnosis you get, whether medical or, or mental or physical, is going to have a stigma attached. Yeah. We are, um, you know, human beings are quite sensitive to contagion. We're very aware of um, contagion. You know, you don't have to have OCD and germ phobia to, you know, to really be aware of contagion around you. And, um, it's amazing the kinds of things that are associated with contagion. Uh, in the lab that I worked in at UBC, one of the individual difference variables that we studied in situations, looking at how people respond differently in situations, was perceived vulnerability to disease. So the degree to which you think of yourself as vulnerable to getting diseases relatively easily or whatever. And the higher you were on perceived vulnerability to the disease, the more likely you were to uh, engage in anti-fat prejudice. Weird, huh? As if fat is somehow contagious. Yeah. Um, but here's an interesting thing about that. Uh, I was reading just la like a year or two ago, I was reading a journal article about um, or I was reading a general interest newspaper article. There's a research team that believes that they uh, have found a virus that's linked to obesity. So there may have been in our evolutionary past a real contagion um, involved with obesity, right? So, you know, so these ways that we have of kind of seeing the world, um, you know, are very interesting in how they play themselves out. Well, that's off off the subject, but. Um, but yeah, so really, most diseases are stigmatizing. You know, I talk about having cancer. Um, you know, most of you probably, you know, if you know something about me other than I have had cancer, you will form an opinion around that. You know, it won't be the central core. But if all you know about me is that I have had cancer, you might think, well, I wonder what's wrong with him. You know, because a lot of times we will think that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, the just world belief. And each of us varies in how strongly our just world belief uh, is active. Yeah. Actually, I don't think that cancer carries, in my, like my experience, that it carries the same stigmatism with it as other, like you said, like chlamydia. Okay. You know, that it just, this is just from what I've seen. You know, so there are levels of stigma, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you might make an attribution about me as a result of, 
you know, because a lot of people have the view, for example, that cancer results from, you know, people who don't know how to deal with their emotions or whatever. There's all kinds of weird ideas about, um, about diseases, yeah. Right, yeah, so it's assumed to be a death sentence, right. and it really isn't, yeah. So, so now, uh, we, the uh, psychiatric community also made another name change, which was multiple personality disorder became, no, no. oh, careful. <laughs> bad, bad. So, um, so dissociative identity disorder, and again, that's really, it's, you know, so clinical and sterile, it takes away a lot of the, you know, the essence of the disorder in some ways. But, um, and so she actually addresses that on page 183. She says, the destigmatization of mental illness comes about, um, the question arises whether, ultimately, the destigmatization comes about from merely a change in the language or instead from aggressive public education efforts from successful treatments such as lithium, the anticonvulsants, antidepressants, the antipsychotics, from treatments that are not only successful but somehow also catch the imagination, um, uh, from discovery of the underlying genetic and other biological causes, from brain imaging techniques, uh, from the development of blood tests, uh, or from legislative actions such as the Americans with Disabilities Act and the obtainment of parity with other mental, medical health conditions under whatever health form health reform system is put into place. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, mine's kind of back to before. But oh, don't drag us back there. <laughs> in changing the name when I, like, when I was reading it, I kind of got the influence that calling it manic depressive for her was a way of her only own condition. I don't know. Yeah, yeah so Zach was also bringing that idea up that it was her somehow. Does that kind of get to it? Kind of. I was just like, when we were talking about how people cope um, about this book earlier, we were talking about different ways like you, that you control and you manipulate your own disorders. And oh, okay. And so I was wondering it could be. So maybe somehow taking ownership of the disorder allows me to feel like I'm more in control of it or mm -hmm. or maybe in control of at least my perceptions of it or if not other people's perceptions of it, possibly. Uh, where do you think destigmatization is going to come from?
think that's what they're trying to do is take away these extreme words that when you just hear it, Yeah. And in some ways, um, you know, we try as much as we can to move away from words like crazy or insane or something like that. Um, and so whenever we communicate with the public, we tend to avoid that stuff and tend to use the uh, more clinical terms. Um, Yeah. I don't know if it's like some sort of, you know, survival thing that was, you know, like things that have just gone bad or whatever. Well, um, yeah, actually. To try to keep the survival of the species or whatever. I don't think that humans will ever go away. I yeah. And, you know, I mean, we can't realistically think that we're going to educate everybody. Um, you know, people have to first be motivated to seek out the information. Um, and not everybody is going to be. Hold on a second. And, uh, but here's the deal about this class. Um, you uh, are, are now in a, uh, in a powerful position to start destigmatizing these disorders with your friends, family, uh, people you work with, people you come in contact with, um, you know, they find out you're taking um, class in mental illness, you know, the, pretty soon they'll be starting to talk to you about, oh, my friend has this and this symptom. What do you think that friend has? And you're like, well, you know, um, these are these are diseases, these are disorders, and um, here's what we think causes the disorder and. Um, you know, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means you might need some help, you know. And so, so you're in a powerful place now. Uh, after completing this class, you'll have that um, that ability to really be a destigmatizing force uh, in the people around you. Yeah, uh, Victor. If I may, I would like to disagree with you. I uh huh. Stigma no, you can't disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> There is if you want to go, you'll find a way to do it no matter what. There's monies out there. I disagree with that. If you try hard enough, I think that you really can well, let's turn it, find ways to do Let's turn it on the corollary. If you are disinclined to go to school, you will find a way not to. Who 
Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to go too far off track here. Um, but um, there are a lot of factors involved in those kinds of situations, so it's hard to pin it down to just having access to education. But aside from that, um, so uh, anything else in this part four that uh, sticks out for you? Oh, good. Okay. So what is her attitude toward having children? She really wanted children. What is her attitude now at the end of the book? Is it the same? Is it different? Has it evolved? Has it changed? Very much. How, uh, how do you, as a parent, uh, knowing that you carry, um, you know, at least a recessive gene for a disorder like uh, bipolar disorder, which is highly genetic, um, you know, it, it could be easy to say, I'm not going to have children because I don't want them to have bipolar disorder. Um, how do you make that decision? That's a hard decision. Yeah. Okay, so um, so here now you are the child of a mother who has a recessive, who has this recessive genetic trait. So you have it in the family history, and you are saying that you uh, feel as if it it was irresponsible for you to be born. Yes. Yeah, to be born into that family. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, Zach. Children, even if they end up with it, sure. um, 
So I think it depends. If somebody looks at it as a negative, you know, and they can't stand that they have this illness, then, then yeah, they maybe shouldn't bring children into the world. But if there's somebody who thinks that it actually has propelled them into a, a happy life in some way or another and made them who they are, and they like that person, then, you know, I think it's up to the individual. Well, just consider um, how relatively impoverished um, at least the clinical and academic community would be uh, in terms of knowledge of uh, bipolar disorder without K. Redfield Jameson. Uh, I didn't go, I usually, sometimes I'll go to the library and get her textbook on uh, bipolar disorder. It's literally a thousand pages and uh, it's enormous and you know, so that's an amazing resource for you know people to help deal with the disorder. So um, now, not now you have the knowledge that you know you have this genetic lineage. Um, how are you going to deal with the idea of having children? Um, you have a lot of reservations. Yeah, sure. Um, and you have seen the effects of untreated mental illness or treated mental illness? Depends if she's taking her meds or not. Okay, yeah. But here's the deal. Now, like Zach says, you're in a position to help your daughter or son um, to understand um, when the symptoms, you know, do start occurring if they do emerge. And, you know, the the it's really a crapshoot whether any offspring is going to have the disorder, so. Right. So, um, so it may or may not, um, the disorder itself and knowledge of the disorder may or may not help um, someone. You know, it's really partly going to depend on individual difference factors um, in whether they seek treatment, whether they stay with treatment, whether, you know, um, we have the right treatments or we have treatments that are going to, um, that may harm somebody, right? Um, but it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult question, um, and it's one that's not easy, um, and hopefully uh, not many of us will have to struggle with that uh, dilemma, really. Um, anything else? Or, or are there more comments on the issue of having children?
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, who was that? Was it? Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what is it? Um, 200, you said? Oh, right. The idea, this whole problem with clinical privileges. Yeah, she goes out to lunch um, with, uh, and he was the clinical chief or something? No, she just calls him a former colleague. Um, he's, uh, he was, he said, deeply disappointed. He had thought I was so wonderful, so strong. How could I have, temp have attempted suicide? What had I been thinking? Well, um, frankly, <laughs> when you commit suicide, you're not thinking much. Um, it was such an act of cowardice, so selfish. Um, and so, you know, this is not uncommon that people see your disorder in the light of how it affects them or how they would respond to the same kinds of situations or conditions that you found yourself in. Um, and it's, you know, you know, it's really hard to deal with that. Um, what, what did you find about that, Kelly? Uh, anything special? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you would be you would be shocked at the amount of stigma mental illness has in the mental health community. People who work in the field. Um, you the main reason one of the one of the main reasons that um, uh, that psychiatrists. Uh, write their own, you know, basically psychiat psychiatry has one of the highest suicide rates of any profession. And one of the reasons is that they write their own prescriptions for their own disorders because there's too much of a stigma to go to a fellow professional to actually get the um, diagnosis and to get the treatment and be followed up. So it's just a really bizarre dichotomy, isn't it? Um, if you're interested in this, uh, if you go to my weblog, um, I have a uh, link to an article about that, and it's it's astoundingly bad. Um, you, yeah, it's it's shocking, really. So if we can't break the stigma down in terms of practitioners, what hope do we have in terms of helping reduce stigma among the the general public, right? Right. Good. You know, having something that is some kind of disorder or illness or anything else would make you less productive. So, so part of being a doctor has this image of sort of being perfect, right? Like, you know, somehow I go to my doctor's office and I'm always surprised if they have a cold or something. It's almost like, <laughs> what? What do you mean you got a cold? <laughs> You're a doctor. You shouldn't ever get sick, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, uh, so what else? Anything else in here? I was actually just, I don't really have anything to say. I was, I was surprised that she blasted that guy in here, used his name, 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, calling him out is an act of bravery. Uh, do you, any, anybody familiar with law um, and slander and libel? You know, is that a, is that a risk for her yeah. to do that? Um, or would she, maybe she sought his permission and he actually gave it, I don't know. Okay, okay, so. yeah. <laughs> um, what else in here? I, uh, nothing in, in this part four in particular, but she alludes to it. Uh, she just she kept saying in dealing with this illness that she was sorry how she treated people and the effects of what this illness can have. I was disappointed in the book because we didn't hear what many of those effects were. She kept alluding to, you know, going through these uh, phases of, you know, mania and whatever, and then depression, and, and things she says, she was, you know, felt bad, but things were, you know, irreparable at times, but we don't know who with. Sure. Uh, to what capacity she's referring these things to. Yeah. And so I believe her that this happened, uh, but I just wish we would have had some examples of how yeah. does this illness affect your relationship with people. Yeah. Say it affects it, but such, such as who? Anybody. Well, f uh, consider, uh, f on a second. consider, for example, her brother, right? She always talks about how he's, you know, always there, always helpful, but, you know, she doesn't talk about how he had to disrupt his whole life to go take care of her, right? Um, why do you suppose that is? Or did you have something else? Okay. All right, we'll get to it in a second. Um, so why do you think that is that um, she refers m only to her own experience? Because she's going to be telling a subjective story if she refers to other people. Yeah, um, so you really only have knowledge of your own subjective state. She could have gone and asked the people and said, hey, you know, um, I'm writing this book. I want to know how it felt for you, you know. Um, I don't know. That's a good point. You know, um, you know, there is, oh, hold on a second. There is kind of, I don't know if anybody else noticed it, and maybe I'm just reading too much in it, but there is kind of an undercurrent in her writing of um, somewhat sort of self-absorption. Anybody pick that up? I thought so, too. You know, and maybe this is just um, her sort of a reflection of her self-absorption or narcissism or whatever, um, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, first Chris and then... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. So, so actually knowing about it Especially early in treatment where, um, you know, she may be more fragile, you know, she might not want to know the damage, uh, the damage that she caused. But I would hope that um, later in her treatment that she would have been able to, but...
people. Yeah, it is a bit of a disappointment that the other character or other characters in her life tended to be um, sort of two-dimensional. You know, you didn't get a lot of depth uh, in their experience. Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the men, these men, sort of, kind of, it's almost like they kind of drift in and out of her life, and. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm pretty sure she is still married to him to this day, but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was, you know, and that's, I think maybe that's what gave me the impression of sort of self-absorption that she had. I don't know. Yeah. I was just, uh, back to what Zach said about how through the whole book, um, she had, she had kind of alluded to what she was, uh, how she'd affected other people, like, is in reference to the having children thing. That's what I'm talking about, though, that you may have the best of intentions, but your illness does affect how you treat people, um, how you deal with your interpersonal relationships with your husband, you know, the, the father of your children, presumably, all of that's going to affect your child, um, as well as like the self-absorption part. I think the number one key to being a good parent is being selfless, and that's this disorder that's very, very difficult to mm. be selfless with, mm. because it, it's so consuming. Mm. So, I'm, I'm just backing up my, my stand Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, okay. Um, got a few more minutes, any other <coughs> comments? Last uh, comment, Victor? Mm-hmm. Or like with me being asthmatic, 
Um, okay, it's getting close to four. Why don't we take a break? Can you come back about five after? Because um, we've got a lot to uh, run through in the last half of class here.